it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Yes, I am Mary Walter sitting in for Brian Kilmeade. Coming up later this hour, we're going to speak with Lieutenant Colonel Alan West. Uh, we're going to talk to him. Uh, there's there's just so many things to talk to him about, uh, things that are happening in this country, especially in his state of Texas, down on that border. So we're going to talk to Alan West coming up. Joining us now, though, John Yanarelli. He is uh, retired from the FBI, was a member of the FBI Cyber Division and the FBI SWAT team. And uh, he's also the author of Disorderly Conduct. And also, how to spot a terrorist, John Yanarelli. Thank you for joining me. Welcome to the show, Mary. Thanks for having me this morning. There is so much to cover with you, so I'm so glad you're here. Um, I, I guess I want to start with an overarching question, then we're going to go into some other things that I think support this question. Um, and a lot of it has to do with my personal view, but I think a lot of Americans feel this way. When I think of the FBI now and and other government agencies, I don't, I'm not proud of them anymore. I don't trust them. If an FBI agent came knocking at my door, there's no way I would allow them in my home unless I had my lawyer with me. Uh, as opposed to, I think, maybe probably long ago and far away, I was very naive and I thought, oh, that they're here to protect me and they're here to help me. But it seems to me as if the FBI, as we hear more and more and more, especially in the late of the 2020 election, They've, to me, gone rogue or they've become woke or maybe they're drunk on their own power. Has it always been that way? Am I misinterpreting the way the FBI is now? So there's a couple of things to uh, a lot to unpack. Let's start with the fact that the men and women of the FBI, the agents, the support employees, they want to do the job. They want to protect America. They want to protect citizens. What you're talking about is some of the politics that have infiltrated the FBI. And you're absolutely right. It's different. There was a time when I was an agent that if I wanted to have a lawn sign for a city councilman, I could get in trouble. Now you hear people talking about politics openly and showing support for certain political sides, stuff that should have never happened and never was allowed in the past. But here's the important thing to remember. The FBI does not have any power to go out and unilaterally conduct investigations or decide what they're going to want to do. All of the direction of what the FBI does comes from the Department of Justice and prosecutors. Agents can't even open a case unless they have concurrence by the Department of Justice to open that case. So you're looking at a lot of directions politically that's coming from within And you have those persons that regardless of who the president is, they have their political leanings and they've been around in Washington a long time and they want to push those leanings. That's what you're seeing happening from the FBI. I think with the attorney general and the investigation of school parents, that's a great example of what's taking place. 
and that was one of the things on my list to, to support my feeling. This investigation, and, and there doesn't seem to be accountability. Like, no one is being punished for spying on American parents for simply going to a school board meeting. That lack of accountability, I think that that plays into uh, the feeling of distrust. Now, are people right for saying that there's no accountability, or is that just a wrong perception? I don't know if it's a wrong perception because where does the accountability come from? Well, it'll come from the Department of Justice, OIG, but all of that is being directed by the very people that are insisting that agents go out and conduct these investigations. You know, Mary, here's a question that nobody is asking. We're hearing about, well, domestic terrorism is the biggest problem we have and we need to look at threats by school parents. Has anybody asked a question, how many cases have you actually opened? If it's such a big threat, why are we not hearing about prosecutions and things like that? To me, it's all rhetoric being created on that side of the left that as if there's this massive problem when in reality, maybe there was one problem, maybe there was two problems. And by the way, none of this rises to the level of FBI investigation. It's if there was an issue, that's all local police jurisdiction. So, okay, so it, but the agents, which you say they're, the agents are good, it, it just seems to me from, again, I believe that, you know, it's hard, it, the entire profession gets painted with a broad brush. I understand that, and I understand that it's wrong. But it, it, it seems as almost if there's a kind of drunk on power type thing going on here, and they realize the power that they have. A lot of the, even agents, I would guess, but but higher ups, realize they're unstoppable. So what happened to our system of checks and balances that's supposed to keep things like investigating parents? What's to prevent that from happening? Again, that's the issue that we're seeing based on the higher ups in the FBI in certain areas, as well as what's happening in the Department of Justice. You're seeing a slow walk when it comes to things like the Hunter Biden laptop, but yet we're responding in real time when it comes from a possible allegation of somebody said something happened at a school board meeting. Right. You're getting that political leaning, which is incredibly inappropriate at best, and it's something we have to do about, but that is going to come from higher ups, the executive branch, et cetera. And I don't really think you're going to see a lot of change under the current administration. Right. And then when you try to get change, like under the Trump administration, they actively, it appears to me, I don't want to make allegations that aren't true, but it appears to me that the FBI actively worked against the commander in chief in order to prevent him from making the changes that we're talking about are needed. Well, and again, uh, you've got to look at how the FBI operates and how it's directed. So, for example, the director of the FBI answers to the attorney general. That is the FBI's ultimate boss. So if you have persons in power in the DOJ that don't want certain actions to be taken or want certain investigations to be conducted, that's what it's going to happen. Agents in the street are there to do their jobs, but also when they're ordered to do something – It's a paramilitary organization. You have to follow lawful orders or you can be dismissed from your job otherwise. But are those those orders lawful? Well, you know, to hide Hunter Biden's laptop, sit on it until after the election. Is that lawful? 
Well, whether it's lawful or not is something that, again, that is a judicial issue that has to be addressed. But what what you're seeing is not people doing an investigation. They're just not working at it in a timely fashion, which clearly to me is unethical. Now, I know there's agents chomping at the bit to get out there and conduct the investigations that need to be conducted. But again, when you're being told, no, you know what, you're going to go over to here and do this instead, and that's your job, your hands are tied. You can't work an investigation unless you have given the authority. And look at the other side of that. We don't want agents to be investigating things they shouldn't be investigating, which is why you have those balances in place that agents have to follow the direction they are given. Otherwise, the potential exists for them to be doing other things. Again, at the end of the day, the men and women of the FBI, the agents, the support employees, they want to do the right thing. Sure. You're getting those politicians up at the top of the seventh floor at FBI headquarters and those across the street at DOJ that are really trying to change the way things have always been and should continue to be. And just one more question is because there's so many other things I want to get into with you. But, you know, I, I, I think I hold a perception that I think a lot of people do now that they and their their view of the institutions in this country just were totally flipped on their head with the 2020 election. Um, so do we have basically then just a small group of men and women who are um, all working for the Democrat Party who hold ultimate power over our lives and um are being allowed to just run the show as they see fit as opposed to our elected officials. To a certain degree, that's what's taking place. Obviously, everybody in government, whether it's the FBI or elsewhere, has political views and political leanings. But you never discussed them. You never talked about them. I worked with people for 20 years that I had no idea was a liberal or a conservative because it was just not something you did. Now you're getting some people that have strong political leanings, they've gained power, and they've decided, hey, I know better than you, and this is what we're going to do. Yeah, the good old days when people didn't talk about politics or shove it down your throat, right? Exactly. (laughs) Okay, along those lines, there's a flyer going around apparently at the FBI, and it has to do with the nomination of Katanji Brown-Jackson to the Supreme Court. You talk about politics in, in the FBI, in the Bureau. What does that flyer say? What is that flyer about? So that was a flyer out of the Los Angeles division, and that flyer was put out basically a discussion with the assistant director in charge of that office. There's a couple of offices that are so large that the FBI actually appoints an assistant director to oversee operations. And it was going to be a conversation with the assistant director about the nominee, and it was billed as a party to celebrate this historic event of having a woman of color who is the presumptive Supreme Court nominee. The issue here is, one, again, the FBI is the agency that does the background investigation of potential Supreme Court nominees. Uh, This is, again, politics gone amok because – No way the FBI should be celebrating somebody who hasn't even been nominated yet. It's not to say the person won't be nominated, won't pass the background, all those things considered. But you don't conduct that sort of business. It would be like having an election party for a presidential candidate before the election has been held. Even furthermore, 
We're talking about doing something on bureau time in government space at government expense because employees would not be doing the job of the government, but but instead celebrating this time at this party or gathering. Totally inappropriate. And I'm amazed that this even was suggested, let alone approved. Now, of course, it was shut down. It didn't actually happen in the manner it was supposed to. But that's because eventually other people caught yeah. wind of it and thought, hey, the optics on this are terrible. We should not be doing it. <laughs> yeah, not because we shouldn't be doing it for other reasons. It's just that it doesn't look good. All right, more coming up with John Yanarelli. And I want to talk to you, uh, since you are a cyber expert, about the possibility of Russian cyber attacks. That's coming up here on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Don't go anywhere. Brian Kilmeade will be right back. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. A talk show that's real. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. And I'm Mary Walter sitting in for Brian Kilmeade. Joining me in studio, John Iannarelli. Uh, he's retired from the FBI. He was a member of the executive staff of the FBI Cyber Division. And he's the author of Dis- Disorderly Conduct and How to Spot a Terrorist. John, Russian cyber attacks, you know, the president has warned us that this may happen, although he did give them a list of things that he's not allowed to attack, which I thought was one of the one of I just thought that that was just laughable when he did that. I thought, how about telling them they can't attack anything? But he gave them a list of things that they're not allowed to attack. How real is this threat and why haven't we seen it happen yet? Well, This threat is very real, and we are seeing it happen. We've seen a a number of cyber attacks over the years from the Russians. This is nothing new. The whole idea of giving them a list of what they can't attack or there's going to be repercussions, it's ridiculous. They're already doing it. We are having not only Russia but many other countries as well, but focusing specifically on Russia. It was just a couple of years ago where there was a hack by Russia into a software system that most of the private sector in America uses. It shut many businesses down as they tried to recover from that. We've seen Russia cyber attacks at other nations and certainly at the Ukraine, both before the war and now going on as well. We have to be ready for it. And I know President Biden talked about businesses need to step up and be prepared for potential cyber attacks. But businesses are already aware of that. You're not telling us anything new. They're doing the things they can. But the problem in the cyber world is you don't know what's coming when somebody invents a new method of attack. We're always very responsive and we will find the fix and find a way to prevent it in the future. But there's something new always around the corner. So what's the most vulnerable of our systems? If they decided to attack us on a national level, if you were Russia, or what do you think we should be looking for and protect? We want to be worried about our critical infrastructures, you know, our electrical grids, uh, water, power, things like that. Because if you can't put gas in the tank, if you can't turn on the lights or the air conditioning, if hospitals can't run operations, that's significant. But 
most of the time, it's not these brute force attacks that they're going to hack in and figure out the code and change something. They're going to send some sort of scam, some email with a link you click on. The weakest link is always the employee who is not trying to do anything wrong that they just click on it, and that causes the problem. That pertains to all these critical infrastructures. But beyond the critical infrastructure, Russia knows if they can hurt American business. It's one thing if the power goes off. The government's going to be on it. We're going to be working around the clock to restore it. What happens when I put the business out of business because I've hacked into their computer system? It ruins the economy. And if I can do that across the nation, that can have just as big of an impact as shutting off the lights. Are we prepared? We are better than most, but there are things we have to do more of. And a lot of it has to do with training employees what to do and what not to do so that they're aware of the dangers and that they can be the weakest link in the whole protection of the company. Likewise, companies need to take it serious. I hear a lot of businesses say, you know, I'm a small to medium-sized business. Why would anybody want to hack me? Well, that's exactly why the big major Fortune 500 companies have a lot of money for cyber protection. The smaller and medium-sized businesses don't even think about it, and that's what they go after. And, for example, the big Target hack from years ago, it wasn't the store Target that was hacked. It was a local small vendor doing business with Target. They hacked into that company, and next thing you know, the entire Target chain had problems. Wow. Is is if per, Putin were to do that, uh, that would be a huge. That would be considered, I'm sure, a huge escalation against the United States, depending on how crippling it is. What would be a response on on our part? What would we be able to do in response to this? Is there a way that we could hit them? We certainly have cyber capabilities. A great example would be the North Korea issue a couple of years back. You might remember when North Korea was unhappy with a movie that was made here in the U.S. And uh, they hacked the Sony company as a result, and people lost their jobs, money was lost. Well, in North Korea, they lost their internal Internet access for a couple of days. And essentially, that was the U.S. government firing a shot across the bow, letting them know, hey, if you mess with us, we can mess with you. you. But you have to look at the proportionality of it. Right. You know, we have major attack here by North Korea, and people lose their jobs. Millions of dollars are lost. Yes. What happens in North Korea? What, seven people couldn't get on Facebook for a couple of days? <laughs> John Yannarelli, we're going to have to leave it at that. Thank you so much for joining us. His books are Disorderly Conduct and How to Spot a Terrorist. Coming up, Lieutenant Colonel Allen West will be joining us, and we're going to talk. Uh, one of the things we're going to speak to him about is what's happening down on the southern border. Uh, in his state of Texas, and the effect of these this impending just flood of uh, immigrants coming into this country illegally with our government having no plan to stop it at all. Actually, it looks like they're welcoming it. That's coming up next on The Brian Kilmeade Show.
out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. And I'm Mary Walter, sitting in for Brian Kilmeade. Coming up, we'll be joined by Lieutenant Colonel Alan West. And we're going to talk to him about Title 42. Now, Title 42 uh, was used by the Trump administration in order to stem the tide of illegals coming into this country. And what it did is it said, well, under COVID, we have an emergency. And so, therefore, we're going to use that. We can't have these people coming into the country because of this pandemic, and we're trying to stem the, the, the tide of the pandemic. And so Title 42 was used to turn around over a million uh, people who came to this border, about 1.7 because of, of Title 42. And now we have this administration saying that they're going to roll back Title 42. Here's Chad Wolf on America Reports, talking about what would happen if we actually roll back Title 42. Not only do you have a number of individuals that are coming to the border every day today, uh, and you're going to have to be releasing those into the country, so much more than we've currently seen, but you're also going to have a surge that's going to come behind that because they know the cartels, the smugglers, and the traffickers are going to know that they can get their commodity, which is a human being in this case, across that border, and they'll stay here in the United States. And that's what folks are paying for. And so when you have this, and then you have the Biden administration announcing this uh, almost six weeks early, I, I don't understand the logic there. They are giving a roadmap to the folks that want to come across this border illegally and helping the cartels. And then you're empowering the cartels to take certain action and giving them a six month head, or six week head start to do so. It, it's baffling. That was Chad Wolf here to discuss that. Lieutenant Colonel Alan West. He's the director, former congressman of, 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 excuse me, he's the director of the American Constitutional Rights Union, and he is a former congressman. Colonel, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to be with you, Mary. How are you? I'm doing great. Always glad to talk when I get to talk to you. So you heard what Chad Wolf had to say there about what's going to happen with the ending of Title 42. My question to you is, yes, it's, it's baffling why they would give so much notice, but it's not baffling if you just want hordes and hordes and hordes of people to come across the border. What's baffling to me is why. Why do the Democrats want just millions and millions and millions of people coming into this country illegally? Well, this is part of their ideological agenda. It's the open borders agenda, and it's part of them undermining the sovereignty of the United States of America and moving toward a one-party rule and control in this country. When you combine the fact that they are flooding America with millions of people here illegally and the fact that they don't want voter ID, they don't want voter registration roll review, they don't want people even going to polling locations, they just want to mail out unsolicited ballots when it comes to voting, this just uh, gives you the blue what they believe in. But the point is this. This is all unconstitutional. Again, you look at Article 4, Section 4 of the Constitution. 
Uh, that's the guarantee clause. The federal government is supposed to guarantee that every state in the union protection from invasion. This is an invasion. This is not an immigration issue. But what I also find pretty ironic is that the Biden administration is lifting Title 42, but yet here in Texas we just had uh, Governor Abbott renew the COVID emergency declaration here in the state of Texas. Yeah, and and we're going to put them on buses and planes uh, with no ID whatsoever. But I have to, and we could they can come across because we don't have a an emergency anymore, as you just noted the irony in that. But yet I have to wear a mask on a plane, which makes no sense yeah, to me whatsoever. It's unconscionable. It's, it's the biggest bit of hypocrisy that I've ever seen. So it, it appears, Mary, that illegal immigrants have more rights in the United States of America than law-abiding American citizens. Which we know, which we know. But here's the thing. Hypocrisy is a superfood for Democrats, and it's a superfood for them. They thrive on it because they get away with it. So my next question is, where's the GOP? If what is happening here is illegal, if Joe Biden is is breaking the law, not enforcing, he's going against laws that were enforced by Congress, where's the impeachment? The man is not doing his job. The man is is taking power, and he's he's subverting the three branches of government. Where's the impeachment? Well, that's the problem that we have. When you look at Republicans, and, and I'll be very honest, Mitch McConnell has said that they're not going to come out with any type of legislative policy agenda uh, for if they get control of the House and the Senate. Uh, that just is head-scratching. So why would you not stand up and make an issue of the fact that, you know, what Joe Biden is proposing is unconstitutional, it's treasonous, he is violating the Constitution, and this is something that we should put the Democrats on their heels on. So I don't understand why you don't don't go on offense on this issue because this is something I don't care if you're Republican, uh, Democrat, Independent, Green Party, Libertarian, whatever. The flooding of this country with people here illegally is a drug trafficking issue, is a human and sex trafficking issue. It, it affects every single person in this country. Yeah, well, you know, the Mitch McConnell issue is, I think, is answered pretty easily in the fact that he's part of the swamp. He is old school and he just wants to keep the gravy train running. And he doesn't want to upset that apple cart. He just wants to keep, you know, there are a lot of people who want to get theirs. And he apparently is doing quite well. And so he doesn't want to upset that, um, that from, you know, as I said, upset the apple cart. I hate to use the same analogy twice and I was looking for another one. (laughs) So I think that's part of the problem there. We know he's a never Trumper. He couldn't stand Trump. Well, I'll give you a better analogy. Think about it if you're on the battlefield and you're a commander and your troops are looking to you and say, hey, sir, what's the battle plan? And you say, well, we're not going to come up with a plan. We're not going to come up with a strategy. We're just going to trust and depend that the enemy's strategy and plan is going to be so bad that they'll just fail. Uh, and, And that's what is happening here. So when you talk about the GOP, where's their plan, where's their agenda, where's their strategy? I think that's what people are looking for. And Newt Gingrich, you know, had the contract with America, and this whole thing about open borders would be a great platform to bring out there and say that this is what we stand for and this is why we want you all to vote for us and we can restore constitutional governance here in the United States of America and respect for the rule of law. 
And you you talked about the drugs coming over the border, and we just had mm-hmm. the Democrats vote down a bill that would, yeah. would crack down on fentanyl trafficking. It would make it a class one drug, and they voted against it because it contained um, mandatory minimum sentencing for fentanyl traffickers. Why are we opposed to mandatory minimum sentencing for fentanyl trackers who are killing our children? It is the number one killer of our kids. Yeah, number one killer people, 18 to 45. And so why isn't that uh, one of the major points that you could have brought out on the Sunday uh, news programs to say that here we have people, the Democrat Party, that wants they want to legalize, you know, marijuana. That's a drug. They are voting down, you know, this classification of fentanyl. And let's be very clear. Fentanyl comes from China. It's yes. brought into Mexico. They refine it. They manufacture it. And then it's brought across the border. So in essence, China is killing Americans and the Mexican drug cartels, who are really just a transnational terrorist organization, are aiding and abetting that. And therefore, what we see Democrats doing, what we see the Biden administration doing, is that they are aiding and abetting drug trafficking, they're aiding and abetting human and sex trafficking, and the GOP is saying nothing about it. Yeah, that that's what that's what just drives me absolutely crazy is is the GOP just just does nothing. It's just the status quo. They're going to be so bad. We're going to get reelected and we're still going to do nothing. You know, they didn't do anything when they had control. They could have they could have sealed up that border. There were things they could have done and they chose not to do it. Now we have the problem now and they just sit back and go, well, we're not in power. We can't do anything about it. Like, yeah, when you were in power, you didn't do a- anything about it either. It's it's just absolutely maddening. Um, Okay, you were an advisor to the Afghan National Army. You're positioned in Kandahar, Afghanistan. You have a lot of foreign uh, intelligence experience and dealing with foreign uh, nationals and, and things like that. When it comes to the Ukraine, or excuse me, Ukraine, people don't like when you say the Ukraine. When it comes to Ukraine— yeah. What do you what what grade do you give Joe Biden's policies on Ukraine? A, B, C, D. What does he get? I don't know if you can go below an F. I mean, because when you look at the overall foreign policy, it's a failure. And that's why we see ourselves in the morass that is happening there in Ukraine. And remember that when it was the Obama-Biden administration, uh, that's when Vladimir Putin annexed Crimea, and he took over the the Donbass uh, area there, which is eastern Ukraine. So Putin has taken advantage of a very weak person that's sitting there in the Oval Office. So you have to give Joe Biden an F. We have failed in owning up to the 1994 Budapest Memorandum Agreement that said that for giving up their nuclear weapons, uh, part of the non-proliferation treaty, uh, Belarus, uh, Kazakhstan, and Ukraine will be protected from invasion. We have allowed them to be invaded. And we're allowing these incredible war crimes playing out before us. We're seeing indiscriminate targeting of women and children and civilians. And we're just slow walking the aid that they're supposed to get. And we allowed this to happen. And China is paying attention to that. So what would you do? What, what, do, what would you urge him to do differently if you had his ear? Well, first of all, I would say that while we slow walking the uh, the aid, especially the weapons and armaments that are supposed to be going to them, the second thing is, I, again, coming back to the word hypocrisy, I don't see the difference between giving someone man-portable air defense systems to shoot down airplanes and giving them MiG-29s to shoot down airplanes. I mean, you still get the same end result. The airplanes uh, of your enemy get shot down. So we should be uh, supporting the Ukraine, no, I'm sorry, Ukraine with all of the uh, 
uh, the necessary means, and we should be, uh, you know, putting more pressure on NATO to step up because this is a repeat of the late 1930s all over again, and this can have a cataclysmic effect. And the other thing is I would tell him to read Sun Tzu, The Art of War, and you never tell your enemy what you're not willing to do because that creates a gap and they will exploit you. They exploit you. Yeah, and I'm not I'm not any kind of military strategist or anything along those lines, but I'm yet, I find myself yelling at the television when he talks about these things, and I'm scratching my head saying, I don't understand why we are doing this other than Joe Biden's afraid. And I've made the, I've made the comparison all the time. We had Churchill, and we voted for Chamberlain. It, we're going backwards. Yes. This isn't the way it's supposed to go. It's supposed to be the other way around. Do you think— no, you're do, absolutely right. Go, go ahead, ahead, and I just have one quick question for you then. No, you're absolutely right. And let's remember that uh, President Trump— called in a strike in Syria that ended up killing several hundred members of a Russian paramilitary group called the Wagner Group. And guess what? Vladimir Putin didn't escalate anything. Vladimir Putin didn't take it to another level. That's what dictators and tyrants and autocrats respect, that strength and might. Do you, the last question I just want to ask you, do you think that uh, all of this here plays negatively into, into Joe Biden's ratings at all? Because I just don't think this is something that people pay a lot of attention to. I think people go, eh, you know, and they, then they, they pay attention to it for six weeks or so, and then Americans stop paying attention to it. Is this something that damages him politically? No, it damages incredibly so, and I believe it follows up on the debacle that we saw in Afghanistan, which is the biggest strategic operational and tactical failure that this country will probably ever know. So uh, Americans don't like to be seen as weak. I don't think we like to be seen as losers, and that's exactly what is happening right now. We are uh, getting the sand kicked in our face, if I could use that uh, metaphor uh, to, to describe where we are. Well, I think Corn Pop did that to Joe Biden a couple of times, so maybe he's used to it. (laughs) Lieutenant Colonel Alan West, as always, thank you. So informative. I, I love getting to talk to you. Have a great week. Thank you. You too. God bless. Take care, Mary. <laughs> Take care. I've got more coming up. I've got some some news to share with you coming up right here on the on the Brian Kilmeade Show. It's Brian Kilmeade. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. I'm Mary Walter sitting in for Brian Kilmeade. Just want to hit some uh, news here, just a couple news stories. But first, let's go to William on WTRC from South Bend. William, you're on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hi. Good morning, Mary. It's a pleasure to talk to you again. I've spoken to you a couple of different times, but um, real quickly, I wanted to make a point. Something that you had mentioned, which is uh, a great point and, and a lot of truth to it, that that what you talk about as far as um, commitments and promises and whatever the state of the country is or whatever is taking place, that something else pops up and takes your mind away from a major, major issue. Right now, when we're looking at the the uh, the issue with uh, the war that's taking place, and prior to this, there was all this attention on our border. Well, now all of a sudden, all that's gone by the wayside again because there's something else that's brought uh, that's come up that's a major news factor, which it is, and it's a horrific uh, uh, incident that's taking place. Um, but 
what happens is they get a, a free pass on whatever the previous incident was. And now when we look at this, I'm like, you know, we really need to hold these whatever they are, whether they're a senator or a congressman or the leader of this country, need to hold them accountable to what they said that they were going to do and what their intentions were in leading this country. And right now, that's not happening. Not at all. No, but you you know what I'm going to say to you, and I'm sorry to interrupt you, but we don't have a lot of time here. But you make an interesting point because what I see happening is like my friends who voted for voted for Biden or didn't vote at all because they were pro Trump in 2016. And then they're like, oh, he's mean and mean tweets. And there's a lot of them said there was just so much chaos in the last four years. They just needed it to calm down. They couldn't take it anymore. And that was chaos that was created by the media, obviously, you know, to 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 just constantly be Trump did this, Trump did this, Trump did this. When when you talk to them now and say, well, you know, what about Biden? What about this? What about that? They're like, they don't care because it's not Trump. And I think Republicans, to a certain degree, will be the same way. They're going to vote for whomever the Republican candidate is because they can't stand Biden. So even if the Republicans, and it's mostly Republicans in Congress that don't hold hold up their end of the bargain, we're going to say, but it's my guy. It's not their guy. So as long as it's my guy, we kind of give them a free pass. And that's on us. I, I totally agree. And it's that when, when we look at that, um, again, you know, at, at least with Trump, you didn't have to guess where he stood. There yeah. was really minimal guesswork on understanding what he thought and what he wanted done, what he wanted to accomplish. One of the best parts about it was, in my opinion, that none of this would have happened um, with them doubting any type of involvement with the U.S., they wouldn't have. They wouldn't have done it. They would not have pressed us as far as helping out the. the yeah. uh, I, I, I agree with you. I agree with you on that, William. And thank you so much. I'm sorry, but we got to run. But thank you for for jumping in. Um, I agree that you. This never would have gotten to where it is. Remember, you know, Putin invaded Ukraine under uh, under let's see, under Obama, Biden. He also invaded under um, Bush. He didn't invade under Trump, and then he invaded under Biden. Why is that? And and I had this conversation with someone from England, someone who's, you know, didn't vote in our elections, but hated Trump because he was so unpresidential and he was this and he was that. And I said, you of all people should know the difference. We had, you know, Trump was, was um, Churchill. Churchill was rude. He was loud. He was had a considered you know, had an alcohol problem. He was that guy. Everybody hated him, but he saved England in World War II. They had Chamberlain, who was the nice guy, who said, "Here, just take Czechoslovakia, and then just don't bother us." You'd think that you would learn from history, but we don't. And I blame both sides because I think Republicans do the same thing. As long as it's our guy, we give it a free pass. And you can't do that. I think we have to hold them accountable to standards. I think William's right. we got to start holding our elected representatives to a standard, to do what they said they were going to do. And until we do that, I guess really we really can't complain. I'm Mary Walter, in for Brian Kilmeade. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. 
I'm Mary Walter in for Brian Kilmeade, as Pete just told you there. Excuse me, Frank. Oh, dear Lord, not Pete. It was Frank. Uh, coming up in about a half an hour, Mark Brnovich. He is the Attorney General of Arizona. He's also a GOP candidate for Senate from that state. So we'll be talking to him soon. I want to talk to you, though. All right, 866-408-7669 is the number. 866-408-7669. I'm going to go over some stories with you, but I want to ask a question. If if Republicans manage to not screw it up and they do have a big win in the midterms, which never count your chickens with the Republicans, why, why are Democrats doubling down on everything? All of their bad policies that poll after poll after poll tells us is what what voters don't like about the Democrats, which tells us why people are voting Republican or not voting for the Democrats. We're hearing, you know, you see the shift in, in Hispanics in this country moving towards the Republicans. Why? Well, because a lot of them are Catholic. They're majority Catholic, if not Catholic Christian, some form of Christianity. So they're more conservative. They don't like the rush of illegal immigrants coming into this country because the ones who came here legally don't like the fact that there are the people cutting to the head of the line. But yet Democrats are doubling down on all of it. They're just going to crazy town. And yet they all are talking, the alarm bells are going up about what's going to happen, what they see happening on the horizon in the midterms. And that's another question. Do you really think Republicans will manage to not screw it up? Now, Democrats are trying super hard to gerrymander everything, because if you can't win with your ideas, then, you know, you force it through in some way, shape or form so that you can win on your terms, if you can't win on the other terms, you say, well, if we can't win, you know, by presenting our ideas and based on this elect- electoral map, let's just change the map so that we can win. And they're brilliant when it comes to that. And those are things that Republicans will never do, which is why Republicans continue to lose. So there was an uh, interview, Fox did an interview, I think this is Fox, with um, where they quoted Democratic strategist. Now, I don't like when, and I, I have to be consistent. When we hear stories that come from anonymous sources, I, I, I question them just as a matter of, of due diligence. Because if I'm going to question them when, like, the Washington Post comes out with an anonymous source that says something, then I'm going to question it all, all the way around. I think it's only fair. But a Democratic strategist said that it's bad. You have an energy crisis that's paralyzing. Inflation is at a 40-year high. We're heading into a recession. The problem is simple. The American people have lost confidence in him, in Joe Biden. First of all, I don't I I think that they're kidding themselves if they think the American people had faith in Joe Biden and had confidence in Joe Biden to begin with. I think a lot of people just didn't vote who voted for Trump in 2016 or voted for Biden just because of all of the chaos that surrounded the Trump presidency that was manufactured by the Democrats and the the mainstream the mainstream media. They're the propaganda arm of the DNC. They went out there and hammered and beat the drum over and over and over and over again. Even if they knew it was a lie, they did it in order to keep that chaos going so it would never seem like Trump was doing a good job. There was always a problem. There was always negative news. So I don't think I think a lot of people had confidence in him to be given. Hardcore Democrats, of course, they did. And they, they're, they're the ones who still think he's doing great. They think the economy is fantastic, despite inflation at a 40-year high, expected to go higher. 
Bill Galston is chair of the Brookings Institute's Governance Studies Program. He's a former domestic policy advisor to President Clinton, and he says that unless and until inflation comes down appreciably, there's going to be a ceiling on his job approval, and that's a lot lower than the White House wants it to be. He said high gas prices are one of the biggest, excuse me, Gallup senior editor Jeff Jones. High gas prices, one of the biggest anchors on presidential approval. And they don't seem to care. They look at us, Pete Buttigieg and others get out there and just tell you to buy an electric car. You don't like high gas prices, just buy an electric car. So insanely tone deaf. But they don't. They're not pretending to hide it this time around. Usually Democrats are very good at hiding their disdain for the American worker at, at, and pretending that they're going to, you know, we're going to work on gas prices. We're going to start drilling. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. They're not doing that this time around. And I can't figure out why. 866-408-7669. 866-408-7669. An NBC News poll on Sunday showed Biden's approval rating at 40 percent, the lowest of his presidency in the NBC News poll. Marist College poll found him at 39 percent, down from 40 percent, 47 percent immediately after the State of the Union. He got a little bump. According to Gallup, one in five Americans cited the high cost of living or fuel prices as the most important problem facing the the nation. And that's true. This is something that people are going to be reminded of every single day between now and the midterms, unless they turn it around, uh, that that are going to remind them of how awful Joe Biden is and how what a bad job the Democrats are doing. Uh, the Democratic stat- strategist was speaking on background said the White House is showing an unwillingness to change course. It's not like Bill Clinton in 1994 who would who would do a 180. They get out there and they just keep doubling down and doubling down and doubling down. Why? Why? And the back of my brain, I'll tell you all the time, I don't think you sit here and cheer and say, oh, Republicans, it's going to be a slaughter. Oh, Republicans are going to, they're going to wipe the table with the Democrats. Eh, I don't know. Republicans have an amazing ability to just choke. Kind of like, I don't know, North Carolina last night. Right. (laughs) They have the ability to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory and they do it often. Let's go to Eric in Jacksonville listening on WOKV. Eric, you're on the Brian Kilmeade show. Hi. Hi, Mary. You're right. They aren't hiding it. But uh, we kind of need Joe Biden because Bill Clinton gave everybody a kick in the butt because they forgot about Jimmy Carter. And then uh, the thing about the electric cars of Buttigieg, I read uh, I think it was Business Insider. They're all turning their electric cars back in in California because it's not working. There's videos everywhere. The, the, P, the batteries are expensive to change. They're like $6,000, so people yeah. are just going without. And they're catching on fire. There's a thing called a lithium leak. There's whole rows of cars burning down at uh, charging stations. And the other thing that they said was people want to go to Vegas. You got a 300-mile range. You get the half an hour or three hours. So you got to pull over, have a good book to read. Probably yeah. the Communist Manifesto. Um, have your book to read, sit there for three hours, and then go on your merry way. Or you could just fill your car up in 10 minutes and keep going. I mean, you're yeah. taking all this insanity. And not only that, but the cost of an electric vehicle is cost prohibitive. And where do these people think electricity comes from? 
Where do you think electricity comes from? And guess what? When they raise the price of electricity, your price is going to go up as well. Now, we have a hybrid. I have a car when I was commuting to my job in Washington, D.C. on Fridays and Sundays. I'd live down there for a week and then come home. When I was doing that, we invested in a hybrid, but I don't plug it in. I fill it up. I fill it up in South Jersey because I pump the gas for you in Jersey. And uh, I w- my tank, I could get over 600 miles on a tank of gas. So I would drive to Washington, and what it would do is as it ran, it would generate electric. So sometimes I was fully electric. We would charge the battery. So sometimes I was fully electric, and sometimes I was you know, gas, hence hybrid. I don't think I would ever buy a 100% pure electric vehicle. To his point, to Eric's point, we have friends who have a Tesla. They bought one of the first ones out. And uh, when we go on vacation with them, we don't like to drive with them. So we'll go up to upstate New York, and it's about a five-hour trip. We can go up on a tank of gas, <laughs> but we have to fill up on the way back, unless depending which car we take. Uh, they have to stop and fill up. Now, it's only about 20 minutes for them to charge, but that's if there's no line at the charging stations. As more and more people buy electric vehicles, you're going to have backups at charging stations because more people have cars, but there aren't as enough charging stations. We don't have the infrastructure at this point in time to support everybody going out and buying an electric vehicle. Here's another one. And if you want to comment, 866-408-7669, 866-408-7669. Why are Democrats doubling down and sticking with the game plan when they know it's unpopular? Jennifer Rubin, who writes for the Washington Post, said in her column, said President Biden's approval ratings remain a deeply worrying sign for congressional Democrats' midterm prospects, especially vulnerable Democrats are are moderate Democrats in swing districts who took hard votes on the Build Back Better package only to see the bill fizzle in the Senate. If voters are mad at Biden, they will likely take out their anger on anyone with a D after their name. And she goes on to say that Biden should, the couple things he should do, he should be out there more. He's got to get out of the White House more and not just to go to Delaware, which is what he does every week. And he goes to his happy place. She said it's baffling that his administration announced last week the dramatic release of a million barrels of oil per day from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Why not talk to energy workers in Texas or set up a podium somewhere in Pennsylvania? A two- or three-day tour around the country focused on cutting fuel prices would boost visibility. She also encouraged him to drop the Build Back Better proposal and propose a more focused bill. No more talk about child care, universal pre-K. If Democrats can survive the midterms, they can come back for those items later. In other words, tell them you're going to do one thing and then do something else, which is what politicians do. But Democrats aren't doing it this time. I'll get to your calls, 866-408-7669. Your calls coming up next on The Brian Kilmeade Show. You're with Brian Kilmeade. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. I'm Mary Walter sitting in for Brian Kilmeade. Uh, If you're just joining us, we're talking about why Democrats continue to double down on bad politics that they know Americans don't like when all of the indicators are telling them that they're going to lose in the midterms and they're going to lose big. It just doesn't make sense. Normally, they would pivot. They would say, hey, we're going to do this. No, we're going to drop the talk about parents at school board meetings, drop the talk about um, 
you know, um, kids in schools, boys being allowed to swim on girls' swim teams, that type of thing. You figure they would do that, and then when they win, then you go back and you and then you go back to business as usual and do what you were going to do. That's what politicians do. In the New York Times, a columnist said that you know Democrats are making it too easy for Republicans and slammed liberals from turning away from the working class, and they're tolerating the crime. You know t- those two things people don't like. Stop doing those two things before the midterms. We still have a couple of months. Could could you, you know, you're being branded as the party that tolerates burning down someone's business and letting the person walk away who burned down someone else's business. But the National Party doesn't seem to be listening, and I'm curious as to why. 866-408-7669 in Virginia. Sandy, you're on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hi, Sandy. Hi, how are you? Doing great. So what do you think's happening here? Well, I got two points I'd like to make. First of all, I listen to Fox News pretty exclusively. And when Trump was in office, they kept talking about, uh, you know, the whole Russian uh, theories and uh, all of this stuff. And they talked about it so much that I began to think that they were lying and that the other side was really telling the truth. My point is the Democrats keep pounding and pounding and pounding their agenda until finally even common sense goes out the door, and they think it must be true because they keep saying it and saying it and saying it, and I keep hearing it hour after hour after day after day. They must be right. Gotcha. I understand what you're saying. I, yeah, I, I hear what you're saying because I will tell you, I, I consume, and I I don't make it a secret, I consume all types of media from across all all areas. So I watch Fox. I also though watch MSNBC because I love, I have to tell you the best, the best entertainment you can get morning Joe where Mika Brzezinski just sits there for three or four hours, however long they're on for. And she goes, Oh yeah, you're right. (sighs) That's all she does. And then she interviews every female guest that's, or anything having to do with women, any kind of topic having to do with women. That's when, that's when Mika jumps up and comes to life. But the rest of the time she just tut tuts and acts very concerned and so disgusted. So I do find it uh, um, interesting. But I will say there is there is a benefit, I think, to consuming media from across the spectrum. I mean, we all have our favorites, obviously, but we can still consume from across the spectrum because I think it makes us smarter and I think it makes us more well-informed. And it also gives you an insight into what the other side is thinking and what is important to them. So that's my little hint for today. For instance, if you watch Meet the Press, Chuck Todd, he has been talking about this. He has a um, a meter, a midterm meter, and he has put the Democrats into shellacking, which is below bad, decent, and exceptional. So they have exceptional, decent, bad, and shellacking. And that's where he's put the Democrats. But on a national level, they're not changing their messaging. They're not pivoting. They they're just are on the same track. And it's a losing track, so it doesn't make sense to me. Let's quickly go to uh, Lou, listening on WABC in Wayne, New Jersey. Hey, Lou, you're in my state. How are you? Hi. How are you? Good morning. Good. So uh, we got a quick one. Quick, quick thing. I'm sorry. No, no, no. One go ahead. One thing regarding the um, the electric cars. Yeah. First of all, you know, you can't afford them. You can't afford gas. You can't afford the car. If you can find one at a dealer, 
they're asking well above sticker price. The cost of installing a charging station in your house, who even knows what that costs? Mm -hmm. And then second, I was talking to a gentleman a couple days ago. He says, I live in an apartment house complex. What are they going to do? He goes, I got to run an extension cord off my balcony. He goes, we just can't do it right now. I will and say that there are a lot of a lot of apartment buildings are installing one or two charging stations, you know, inside the building, but it's only one or two charging stations, right? And we keep being told that poor people, Lou, these are great points and I hate to run. Sorry about that. Thank you for listening. Appreciate you joining me. But the left always tells us people minorities are so poor and so helpless they don't even know how to get IDs in order to cast a vote. How are they supposed to be able to figure out and afford some kind of electric vehicle. How is that supposed to happen? You need a credit card in a lot of these charging stations. You need a credit card. You've got to put it in the slot in order to pay for the electricity that you're charging your car with. How are they supposed to do that? You know, we're not thinking about the poor people. And I think, honestly, I think Democrats have lost a lot of people, some of their traditional voting groups. We know they're losing African-Americans. They're losing Hispanics at record numbers. But they just keep going. You know, again, Chuck Todd on on, on MSNBC, he was on Meet the Press, and he said there's, you know, it's a huge red flag. The polls, everything we're seeing are huge red flags. But I find it odd that, the Democrats are ignoring them. And so the, we're going to, we're going to rescind title 42 and we're just going to allow that hundreds of thousands of immigrants to come across the border illegally. And we're just going to do that. And the, I guess they figure people will forget come November. But if you live in a city where these people are being dumped, you're going to remember. All right, coming up, Mark Burnovich, Attorney General of Arizona and GOP candidate for Senate, will be joining us. We're going to talk about what is happening on the border in his state and a couple of other things. A lot of questions for Mark coming up on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Radio that makes you think. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. I'm Mary Walter sitting in for Brian Kilmeade. If you're just joining us, then you don't know. (laughs) But our next guest is the Attorney General of Arizona and a GOP candidate for Senate, Mark Burnovich. Welcome to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Thank you, Mary, for having me on. Great to have you here. I have so many questions for you. You are one of three states that yesterday announced that you're filing a lawsuit to stop the Biden administration from lifting Title 42. Now, Title 42, for those who don't know, is a public health order that was enacted by the Trump administration because of COVID, saying, well, we can't have all these people coming into this country at the border if we have a pandemic going on. We have to keep American citizens safe, and we don't need to be importing COVID. But the Biden administration has decided that they're going to do that now. So you're you are filing a lawsuit. Why are you filing this lawsuit? Are you saying that it still is a public a public threat, a public health threat? Well, yeah, Mary, the short answer is, as we all know, and even the Democrats are acknowledging this, is that Title 42 was working. And despite the fact that we had a record number of people, more than two million people illegally enter our country just in the last year, getting rid of Title 42 during the worst border crisis in two decades 
is equivalent to or like throwing gasoline on a five-alarm fire. I mean, so we know that the Biden administration still talks about COVID-19 being a threat. And if that's the case, why would you end Title 42, which allows for expedited removal proceedings and allows um, uh, ICE to basically expel migrants before giving them a chance to claim asylum? It's worked uh, about 1.7 million times, according to official estimates, and it is also estimated that if Title 42 restrictions are lifted, as many as 18,000 migrants will start surging across the southern border. Literally, we're talking about 540,000 people in a single month. And just to put that in context for the listeners, that's like the entire population of a city like Baltimore, Maryland, or Atlanta, Georgia, in one month illegally entering our country. Now, so I have a lot of a lot of questions. We were just talking about why uh, Democrats, you know, they're sounding the alarm. You hear, you know, MSNBC and the New York Times and all these outlets, Washington Post, are all sounding the alarm about the midterms for the Democrats. You know, hey, it's not going to be good for you. Yet they're doubling down on things like this. Why would they want a visual of hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands of these migrants surging the border and coming across? And and then we know they got on planes and buses and everything. Why would they risk that visual? You know, I I can't speak to the the Biden administration and their their motivations, and I can't tell you what the president's thinking or whoever speaking in his earpiece what they're thinking. But I do know that it's it's always been that neo-Marxist reality of, you know, the world without borders and making people dependent on a central authority. And there was a lot of us that thought when President Biden took over that he wanted to abolish ICE. But it's clear that he's listening to the progressive far left of his party who essentially just want to get rid of the border altogether. And I do think, I mean, you look at, I argued a case about six weeks ago at the U.S. Supreme Court on the public charge rule. And this was the Biden administration elimination of a policy that said, you, you know, we don't want people dependent on the federal government and welfare benefits. And they got rid of that Trump era policy, which essentially will allow people to get government benefits like housing, welfare, food stamps. And that, to me, incentivizes people coming here. And it also makes people dependent on the federal government. Mary, I'm a first-generation American. I know why people want to come to this country, and it's because it's the greatest country in the world, because the rule of law means something, the Constitution means something. And what the far left or what the left, the progressive left, the Democrats, what they are doing is they are essentially shredding the very reason what makes this country great and why people want to come here. And it's because of their utopian, neo-Marxist vision of you know one world with the central authority. That's what I think. Well, I think when you combine this influx of people who are illiterate in their own in their own language, let alone English, uh, don't have jobs or a very, very low wage earnings, you are going to be just create an unsustainable taxation on on the so on the economic system in this country. And that may be part of the reason why they're doing it. But with inflation at 40 percent, inflation is going to skyrocket if this happens. Oh, absolutely. Look, I mean, the the left, the progressive left, the Democrats, they're they're obviously they want to socialize the economy and nationalize the election. And you if you talk to anyone, I look, I I still live in the same neighborhood I grew up in. You know, you talk to your neighbors, your friends, your mom's friends from church and, and every day people will tell you that the Biden administration's policies are, you know, making it harder to fill up your gas, your tank or your car with gas, making it harder to buy groceries. 
And now we know that as a result of the failed Biden policies, people are less secure and safe. We know that there's a record amount of fentanyl coming into this country. The price mm -hmm. of fentanyl is dramatically declining because there's so much of that coming in, and that will kill Americans. And then you add on top of it what you were just you know, talking about when you talk about prices, when you let more than 2 million people into the country illegally a year, um, it will have an economic impact. And the fact that people like myself and some of my colleagues are having to go to court to try to force the Biden administration to just follow existing law. I mean, two weeks ago, we were in federal court. We got an, um, an order against the Biden administration because they were refusing to deport people with deportation orders. I mean, so literally you had people that were either convicted or charged of dangerous crimes being released into our communities with no supervision. And so, I mean, it's ridiculous that I have to go into court to force the president to actually follow existing law that's designed to keep Americans safe. It, it really is head scratching. It's, it's uh, look, this is not humane. It is insane. And as a former gang prosecutor, former federal prosecutor, I honestly don't understand it other than in terms of the progressive left is trying to fundamentally alter and change our country, and part of that is by making a bunch of people dependent on the central government. Well, that's the Cloward Piven strategy from, you know, two with the Columbia University professors back in the 60s came up. If you can crash, if you can crash the social welfare system in this country, you can take control. And that's it looks to me like they're trying to do just I have so much I want to talk to you about just very quickly. This is Jen Psaki at the White House talking about Title 42. Listen to what she says here, because I think it's very telling. I think it's important to note uh, for any critics and any lawsuits um, that Title 42 is a public health directive. It's not an immigration migration enforcement measure. And the decision on when to lift Title 42 was made by the CDC. Why does the CDC have that kind of power to affect our immigration laws? <laughs> well, they shouldn't. And, and a big part of the reason why we are in court very successfully against the Biden administration is because there's one thing worse, apparently, than the Biden administration knows about border policy, and that's apparently about the Constitution and the rule of law. And so, you know, your listeners may or may not know, I filed the first lawsuit against the unconstitutional vaccine mandate. My colleagues and I filed numerous lawsuits pushing back against that federal intrusion. Uh, we have a lawsuit right now over the, ma the federal mask mandate. And I just don't generally don't understand, and I just said this a second ago, but what they are trying to accomplish with what they're doing on our southern border, because literally the cartels are enriching themselves. We've, we've essentially allowed, allowed gangs and you know, criminal thugs to seize control of our southern border. And this may, people may think, oh, that's an Arizona problem or it's a Texas problem. But I guarantee you, it's in our backyard now. It's coming to your front door tomorrow. And, you know, this is how much, Mary, the Democratic Party has changed. John F. Kennedy pledged to put a man on the moon in a decade. And Joe Biden is literally going to put a felon in everyone's neighborhood by the end of the decade. <laughs> that's a great campaign slogan. I see you worked on that one. I like it. So what, let's talk about Washington just a little bit. You want to go to Washington. You want to help clean things up there. And I think everyone goes to Washington with that idea. But having lived there for a couple of years, I can tell you it's an absolute bubble and no one is cognizant of anything outside of Washington, D.C. The Republicans had a chance to change our immigration laws and, and, and to t toughen them up, and they didn't do it. Right. You talk about the public charge rule. It's a rule. Why didn't Republicans ever make it a law when they had the majority and had the ability to do so? And why do you think that would ever change if, if they take over at the midterms? Because I don't think it's going to change. I just think as long as you have Mitch McConnell in there, it's not changing. 
Well, you know, I can't speak for anybody else, but I, I, I guess I had never run for office before I ran for attorney general. I'm a first-generation American. I'm a public school kid. I've always had to be a scrappy fighter, you know, with the last name like me. And so I can't speak to anyone what anyone else is doing. But, you know, I've stood toe-to-toe with gang members. I've, you know, been involved in death penalty cases. I've literally prosecuted people in my own political party. I, I opposed the governor when he did the lockdowns. I mean, so what we need in D.C. is people that are comfortable in – their own skin that have a coherent philosophy and understand that you know government is not the solution government is the problem and Barry Goldwater used to say that any government that's big enough to give you everything is big enough to take it away. I think one of the things that drives and motivates me you know having parents live through World War II and communism is that we have to be wary of that concentration of power in any entity, especially the federal government. The framers of our Constitution never envision some of the very things that the federal government's doing right now. And what disappoints me so much as a Republican, like, you know, right now, 60% of the Department of Education budget is discretionary. People go back and forth about how much they should be spending, and then, you know, Democrats want this much, and then the Republicans compromise this much. And no one's asking the fundamental question, Why do we even have a federal Department of Education? In 1980, Ronald Reagan wanted to get rid of it. And when you have that kind of control in D.C., that undermines local schools' control. And we see what's happening here in places like Scottsdale or what happened in Virginia. And so we need to make sure we have people in D.C. that fundamentally understand that or want to go to D.C. not to make government more efficient but to make government smaller. And that's what I want to do. And I fundamentally understand that in my core. And I can't speak to anybody else, but I'm a fighter, and that's what I want to do in D.C. Yeah, well, I wish you the best of luck. And good and good for you also for suing about uh, Title 42. We need, we need more states to step up and do this. And it's such a slow slog when you have to sue in order to get them to actually enforce the laws that are on the book. It shouldn't be that way, and yet it's the world turned upside down. Mark Bernovich, thank you so much for joining us thank on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Eight six six four zero eight seven six six nine is my number. I've got your calls coming up next on the Brian Kilmeade Show. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Mary Walter in for Brian Kilmeade. I just have to give a shout out to Martin and Ajax listening in Scotland. And said that they love when I sit in for Brian. So thank you so much. So uh, they're listening in Scotland. How awesome is that? I was really shocked. I was like, wow, that's fantastic. So shout out to them. Let's talk to you. 866-408-7669. We've been talking about why the Democrats just keep doubling down on bad policies, yet at the same time saying we're going to lose really big in November. It doesn't make sense to me. I don't understand why. So I thought maybe you would have a theory. So let's go to Prescott, Arizona and say hello to Chris. You are on the Brian Kilmeade show. Hi. Hey, good morning, Mary. How are you? I'm doing great. So why do you think they're doing this? Well, I I think uh, Mr. Brinovich did a great job uh, explaining why this is happening. He didn't, uh, you know, I know you asked him a different, in a different uh, manner, but at, at the end of this is, if you assume that the Democrats uh, would adjust their political strategy um, is to actually believe that Joe Biden is in control, 
I mean, that's really the bottom line. The lack of adjustment, political adjustment to things like high inflation, gas prices, supply chain uh, problems, it proves that he's not in control and that a very progressive group of people, and I keep hearing this over and over again, whether you watch Fox News or Newsmax or whatever, or listen to Brian, everybody says, I wonder who's in control of Joe Biden. And, and nobody has really dug in deep. And I think if we get to the bottom of who that is, who is running our country, we will know why they're tripling down. You said double down. I think they're tripling down because they know they have a very short window here to make the changes, the, quote, fundamental changes that they're going to make to our country and turn us into a one world order. And I think that's what's going on. But if they if they lose the election, then they lose the ability to do that, right? No, they they don't. And therein is the problem. Is you you talked about this uh, a few minutes ago as well. When you have rhinos in control and and people that follow and look at their pocketbook and their own self interest over what they're there to do, you know, re- representing a Republican group of people that voted for them, um, you're in trouble because we, it's like right now, what, you know, most of us are looking around going, we have no recourse. What can we do? What can we do? You know, I write letters to my Senator and thank goodness that Senator uh, cinema is actually turned into be more moderate than everybody thought. Yeah. She saved this twice and, and we really need to thank her and, and the West Virginia uh, Senator Joe Manchin, but I, I've got to tell you, w- when you have a a president that is that has pretended to be a senator for 50 years, and he is being controlled tightly by a group of people, that's why you don't see the adjustment, and that's why you see let's double down because he doesn't know any better. He he doesn't care about his future. His political future is that's over. I'm not even sure he cares about the second half of his uh, term. Yeah. You know what, Chris, that is a fantastic point. Uh, And and you mentioned the second half of his term. Thank you. I appreciate your comments. He talked about, you know, his, I don't think he's worried about his political future. He's not about worried about the second half of his term. I don't know. I have to tell you, I used to think that um, Joe Biden was going to serve out the full four years. I think he's going to now. And I think it's because they can't put Kamala Harris in. She's just a train wreck. She did not rise to the occasion at all, right? So I wonder if they're just going to have him just limp along uh, until he gets to the end of the four years, and then they're frantically searching for someone now that they can probably put up in 24. Let's quickly go to Panama City, Florida. Leanne listening on WYOO. Leanne, you are on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hi. Good morning, Mary, and thank you for taking my call. Of course. I wanted to speak about um, the electric cars and the situations that are going on in communities. I live in Panama City, and um, I recently returned from North Carolina, and I was shocked to see all the number of gas stations being built when we have so many already. And um, a very dear friend of mine and I, we were driving around the other day taking care of chores, and we got to thinking out loud together. And I, I told her, I said, what do you think? And she said, I think they're charging stations. I think they're getting us ready for electric cars and charging stations. And, and I, I was agreeing with her. 
and the one thing that, that the administration is totally ignoring and not addressing at all is the elephant in the room. All these charging stations are supported by fossil fuels. The electric company uses fossil fuels. Right. And it's such a situation. It's just shocking. These people think we are absolutely drooling idiots. And I've got news for them. We know what's going on. <laughs> well, exactly. So now it's just a matter of being call. able to stop what's going on. Jennifer, th- thank you for that and enjoy the rest of your day. Here's the thing. You, I, I think we do need more charging stations. Absolutely. I do think electric cars are, are part of the future. I see it. But I also believe in everything in moderation. I don't believe in just all one thing. You know, it's why I could never go on like a diet where you only ate grapefruit and toast or something. I, I can't do that. I need I need variety. So a little bit everything in moderation. We need fuel. We need petrochemicals. So that's not going to go away because we need it to generate the electricity to charge your electric car. I'm Mary Walter. You're listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. From the Fox News Radio studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach, it's Brian Kilmeade. Yep, sitting in the seat for Brian Kilmeade. I am Mary Walter. Joining us now is Dr. Tom Kirsting. He's a psychotherapist and he's the author of Disconnected, How to Protect Your Kids from the Harmful Effects of Device Dependency. So many things to unpack here. Dr. Kirsting, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Mary. Thanks for having me. There is so much to unpack here. You know, we talk about our kids being connected to devices and how that's not a good thing. And, you know, you should, you should probably you take the device away from the kid and, you know, have so, limit their screen time. And then for over a year, we sat them in front of screens and told them this is how you're going to go to school. What effect did that have yeah, you on know, kids? Uh, for, uh, tremendous effect. So the mental health epidemic that we're currently in actually began in 2012, which is when smartphones became mainstream. Now, the pandemic, which took kids out of their natural habitats at school, from sports and everything else, now placed them in their bedrooms where their bedroom became their school, their screens became their social atmosphere, um, and essentially being removed from society as human beings, it added a tremendous layer on top of the already present mental health epidemic. Yeah, I, I've noticed because you say it happened started in 2012, and I believe that I have three nieces, and we would go to the beach, and I go, you know, with their mom. We have like a girls' day at the beach, and they come with their friends, and they would sit there in a circle on the beach, all on their phones. They were texting and Snapchatting each other instead of actually speaking to each other. Right, right, and that, that really goes against you know human nature as social emotional beings. So if you've ever seen Shaw- the movie Shawshank Redemption. You know, the old guy, Brooks, um, he yep. gets released, you know, from yep. prison after like 50 years, and he became inst- what they call institutionalized. He couldn't make it on the outside and unfortunately wound up, you know, killing himself. So I kind of look at this similar to that, where kids, you know, have sort of been institutionalized away from the real world and been, you know, stuck inside of these screens in their bedrooms. And now returning back to the real world, it's almost like, you know, a lion that has been, you know, in captivity for, you know, for a couple of years and now can't make it out in, a, you know, in, a, in its natural habitat. Sure. And that triggers yeah. all these mental health issues, depression, anxiety, and so forth. 
Yeah, and and to that point, there was a survey that was released last, just this just before the weekend from the CDC, and they did a study of over seven thousand high school students, with thirty one percent of the kids responding saying their mental health was most of the time or always not good during the pandemic. Sixty six said sixty six percent said that they strongly agree or agree that doing their schoolwork was more difficult during the pandemic than before it started. And on and on. And these are kids who had access to computers. What did it do to the kids who didn't have access to computers or a stable home environment or something along those lines? Yeah, and you know, and those I mean those numbers are staggering. I mean they're just it's it's sad. And you know, the kids that don't have the resources that might not have the in, you know internet connections or their own private laptops and so forth, some of whom came from unstable households where there was more abuse and, and, and such and such. You know, those kids really suffered the biggest brunt of, uh, you know, uh, behavioral issues, mental health issues, and so forth. Uh, collectively, though, it really it has impacted, you know, just about every, not every single kid, but a staggering number of kids, particularly kids in, you know, more marginalized communities. Yeah, and the other part of this, 23% said they went hungry because there wasn't enough food in their home during the pandemic. Yeah, and you know, I mean, that, I mean that's just that's that's you know, that's so sad. And 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 in schools, you know, most schools across the country have something called free and reduced lunch. They actually provide, you know, right. uh, you know, free lunches for kids that that can't afford lunches their families, and in many cases breakfast. So, you know, the kids being removed from school now and not potentially having access to that, now we have, you know, kids that aren't being, you know, being well-fed. And it's sort of like this perfect storm that happened. Okay, so we know that it happened, and I'm sure there are parents listening right now who are like, yep, I saw it with my kid, my kid's changed. Now that my kid's back in school, they're so much different, they're so much better. They need that social interaction, they need that socialization, they need that time away from their parents to just be kids. We took that away from them. How do we repair the damage? Can we repair the damage? We, we, we can repair the damage, right? So I, you know, I lecture all over the country on mental health and screen time and all that stuff. And the number one bit of advice that I give to parents is that they need to spend quality time with their, with their, with their children, actually interacting at a deep level, right? So you know, part of the issue with kids having been home all this time is I, I deal with, you know, I counsel so many you know, preteens and teenagers. They literally spend, most of them spend their times by themselves in their bedrooms. Mm-hmm. So what I try to tell parents all the time is we've got to get our kids out of the bedroom because bedrooms start with bed and are for sleep. And we've got to get them into the family room. That's number one. Number two is, you know, now that the world is open, although for a lot of kids, it's, it really is anxiety provoking now going out into their natural environment. We have to encourage and push our kids to plow through that barrier. You know, there's a lot of school phobia and school avoidance issues going on. We got to we got to push them through. We got to encourage them, and it's going to be difficult. But like anything else, you know, exposure over and over again, you know, reduces the symptoms of anxiety. Yeah, and I think for some parents, because they're so busy and they're so crazed, a lot of that, you know, spending quality time with their kids, that type of thing, is hard for them, and they probably don't even realize that they don't do it. You talk about kids, you know, getting them into the family room. When we were growing up, mm-hmm. my grandparents bought um, TVs for all the grandkids to to have in their their bedrooms except for our family my parents said nope the only time i see them is when they come downstairs to watch tv and we had one tv and everybody had to agree on a show and we watched it as a family and that was it even if we weren't speaking to each other my parents insisted on seeing us and there were no you know no tv no you know phone at the at the dinner table the whole bit we seem to have gotten away from that as a culture as a whole do you think the pandemic will help swing that back the other way 
Well, you know, I, I think during the pandemic, you know, for some families, they, they were kind of forced to be together, and it was actually beneficial. But a lot of families, the problem is that parents are spending as much time on their own screens and phones as kids mm-hmm. are, about eight hours a day. So everybody's sort of, you know, kind of isolated from one another. But now moving forward, you know, with everything now opening up, you know, after, you know, a year or two years of, of having, de- you know, dealing with all this fear, the constant, you know, social media feeds pummeling our minds with fear and death and everything else, um, you know, I really think parents, you know, it's kind of opened up their eyes and they're seeing the ramifications. And I'm really, you know, hoping and praying that they're now kind of scooping up their kids, you know, hugging them, sitting with them, having regular family dinners with them and so forth. Um, you know, one other thing I see, Mary, a trend I've been seeing for a number of years now is even just car rides when parents take kids to school. I used to work at a high school, and I'd look in the rearview mirror every morning pulling in, and it would be the same sight. There'd be a kid in the passenger seat looking down at their phone. So even, you know, little things like that, the five- or ten-minute you know, rides to school and to practice and so forth, you've got to make sure those phones are down and that there's quality communication between parent and child. Yeah, absolutely. I, I want to touch very quickly, and we'll, we'll talk about this more coming up with you, but the the House on Friday, the Republicans have put a motion up to recommit to the Marijuana Opportunity Reinvestment and Expungement Act, and it's also known as the Halt All Lethal Trafficking of Fentanyl Act. Fentanyl now is the number one cause of death in Americans aged 18 to 45 years old. Why are our kids turning to drugs and hard drugs like fentanyl? Back in the day, you know, like somebody got a cigarette or or you had, somebody found a, you know, got snuck a, a beer out of their dad's refrigerator. Now it's fentanyl. How do we get there? You know, it, when you you know, it's frightening, Mary. If you've ever been to the uh, Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington D.C., there's 52,000 names on that wall of soldiers that died. Um, between October 2020 and uh, uh, and September 2021, there were 105,000 deaths from from uh, drug overdoses, double the amount of, of soldiers that died in the Vietnam War. Wow. And the problem is, you know, our society, we, it's, you know, you, it starts with marijuana, right? And I, I have a new book coming out next year, and I have a whole chapter on this stuff. So the legal, you know, the, this whole legalization of marijuana, you know, kind of sends the message to kids that it's harmless, you know, it's legal, it's not a big deal. And that's a gateway drug, which leads to other drugs like cocaine, sometimes heroin. Now, where fentanyl comes into picture is that drug dealers, it's very easy to produce. It's 100 times more potent than morphine and 50 times more potent than heroin. Easy to produce. It's odorless. It's being trafficked across the me- Mexican border. And they, and they lace other substances like cocaine and heroin with fentanyl. Um, because it, it makes it appear more potent. But the, the level of potency, just a, a, a tiny bit too much, is going to cause overdoses, like we saw you know, a couple of weeks ago at those West Point, Point cadets that were on uh, spring break. Yeah, uh, it's the, the traf- I don't understand why we would be against trafficking uh, fentanyl, <laughs> but we are because uh, it's, it's, apparently it's, because it contained a mandatory minimum sentencing for the fentanyl traffickers, yeah. so the Democrats blocked it because we wouldn't want them going to jail now, would we? We're going to. Co- I want to talk to you absolute... more. Ab- go go ahead, ahead. I'm sorry. sorry. Mind boggling. It is. Go ahead. I... I know you got to go to break. We're going to quick break. I want to come back and talk more about the legalization of marijuana, where that is moving in the House and where we think it's going to go in the Senate and why you think that that is um, a bad thing. So more coming up with Dr. Tom Kirsting on The Brian Kilmeade Show. It's Brian Kilmeade. The fastest three hours in radio. 
You're with Brian Kilmeade. A lot of people have a glass of wine every night for dinner, and we're, we're very accepting of that in our society. We're not yet accepting of people using cannabis that regularly. People feel that stigma. That's what it is. Even though it's legal. That's Even though it's legal. legal. Widely legal. That was on CBS uh, discussing the legalization of marijuana since uh, a bill did pass the House, but they expect it to die in the Senate. Here to discuss it, Dr. Tom Kirsting. He's a psychotherapist. He's the author of Disconnected, How to Protect Your Kids from the Harmful Effects of Device Dependency. So, Dr. Kirsting, there is a a stigma attached. We will accept someone having a glass of wine every single night, but not indulging in cannabis. Why is that? Well, you know what? I'll tell you this much, Mary. Uh, alcohol-related deaths are double the amount of every drug-related death combined. So, alcohol is—you know—it's legal, but it causes double the amount of deaths out of every other drug combined. So, you know, marijuana doesn't have that doesn't have that stigma. You know, where you're going to die from it. The problem I have with it is our nation's youth. Now, I counsel teenagers. I've been doing it for 25 years, and there's a mindset among teenagers right now that marijuana is innocuous. It's harmless. It's not going to do anything to you. But what a lot of people don't realize is that the THC levels in, in, in marijuana right now, particularly, you know, the, uh, the, the, the vape versions, can be upwards of 90%. In the early 1990s, regular, mar- you know, regular pot that kids smoked was about 4% THC. So the potency level is off the charts. And what I'm seeing in my private practice is many, many young kids, 18, 19, 20, that are absolutely stuck in life and can't get out of their own way. So, but let me ask you: Isn't that the same? No, if as as liquor, you know, moonshine and and grain alcohol. I mean, that stuff. The potency can kill you, right? So, well, we, yeah, isn't yeah. it better though that it, it it comes out of the shadows and it's regulated so we can control the levels of THC that are available that are legal, right? As we did with with moonshine, right? We we legalized, and now there's a control over it, and you're not drinking bleach and those other things. Wouldn't that be better then for marijuana so that it's not 90% THC? If they do that, maybe perhaps, you know, but, you know, like, you know, if, you know, with legalization, there's always politics and government and it's, you know, I guess the question is, are they really doing it for the benefit of people or is it so that they could tax it and make, make money off of it? You know, I think it's the latter personally, Um, you know, and, you know, if you, if there's an adult, the, the other issue though, Mary, is that with, particularly with kids, there's a reason why I have a problem with this is that their brains are still developing, all right? Marijuana has an impact on, on the brain and hence the development of their brains. And, it, and it's a central nervous system depressant. Um, perhaps the best thing I ever heard was from a teenager that had a drug issue a number of years ago. She said that smoked a lot of marijuana and other stuff. And she said for her, when she was smoking marijuana regularly, it was like hitting the pause button on her life. So that, that's, where, that's where I have a problem with it. Yeah, uh, listen, I don't think drugs or alcohol are good for children, but we managed to accept keeping alcohol away from children, but we won't accept keeping marijuana away from children. I guess there's a disconnect for me. Now, I don't I don't indulge in marijuana, you know, that's not my thing. Yeah. But yeah. I I guess I have a hard time saying, well, if we can if we can regulate alcohol to make it safer and and we mm-hmm. can keep it away from children, then why can't we do the same thing with marijuana? Yeah, well, the, the reality is it's, you know, it's really not being kept away from children. Alcohol. Well, not now, but it's not regulated. It. It's not – it's it's just whatever you can buy on the streets. Yeah, I mean, the kids, they'll get it. You know, I mean, I see, you know, all these teenagers I counsel, a lot of them, you know, drink alcohol. They get it one way or another. Um, you know, but the, the whole marijuana thing, you know, it's, again, that's a gateway drug. 
And, you know, the, the issue I had, and this is just on my experience. I deal with this stuff on a daily basis and it just, yeah. you know, kills me when I have, you know, a 21 year old guy in my office that does nothing except play video games all day and smokes weed, you know, and that's kind of the, that's sort of the, the, the dull lingering effect, you know, for our youth that, you know, chronic marijuana use can, can cause that's, that's my issue. Yeah, no, and I, I don't know what the answer to this is. I kind of tend to lean on the side of let's, let's legalize it, let's control it, yeah. tax it. I'm fine with that too. And parents are going to have to keep know what signs to look for to make sure your kids are not using marijuana. Just like you make sure your kids don't come home drunk. Yeah, yeah. The, the, valid, the same thing. Point. I mean, that, maybe point. I'm looking at it wrong. No, I think you're looking at it absolutely accurately. You know, that's that's it is. You know, parents really need to be on top of their kids and you know, really encourage them and raise them to make good choices and to stay away from things that are potentially harmful. So, no, your your point is very well taken. Yeah, because I, th- I would think that kids, like, can get it so easily. They know where to get it. It's not like it was, you know, back in back in the day, you know, when I, when dinosaurs were on the earth and I was a teenager. And, <laughs> right, like, there was, there was the one kid, but you were never friends with that one kid, you know, because he had yeah, marijuana, right, right, right. right? Like, that kid. Now, nowadays, there's the stigma. I think for a lot of, especially younger people, there is no stigma like that attached to it. And and so they yeah, could probably yeah. tell their parents where to get it. So I, I don't yeah, then, know. I think parents would need to know all of this anyway, whether it's legal or not. They would no, need to know it anyway. But it's probably going to die in the Senate. But you've got a mishmash of rules, and that doesn't help either across the country where it's legal in some states but not on a federal level. And I, yep. not that the feds do anything really good. But I wonder <laughs> if we could we could you know put it under the purview <laughs> of, um, you know, legalizing it and regulating it the way we do alcohol. Dr. Tom Kirsting, thank you so much for joining me. The book is Disconnected, How to Protect Your Kids from the Harmful Effects of Device Dependency. And maybe, parents, you can learn how to keep your nose out of your electronic device as well. So this could be a win-win with this book. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Mary. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. 866-408-7669 is my number if you want to jump in on the marijuana topic. I also want to get to a rule that Republicans could have employed concerning the confirmation of Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson, who will be Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson. And they had the opportunity yesterday when they were with the Senate Judiciary Committee and they could have stopped this and they didn't do it. There is a rule that would that says that if you don't have a quorum, you can't vote. So all that had to happen was Republicans just didn't have to show up. If they didn't show up because they make up half of the half of the um, committee, if they didn't show up. Then they couldn't have had the vote. They could have stalled this if they really wanted to, but they didn't. And I'll go into it more coming up, but these are the things that drive me crazy about the Republicans. Now, you can disagree with me. Maybe you're like, you know what? We don't play that way. Republicans don't play that way. So, um, you know, they did the right thing. But if you don't think for a second that Democrats would have done that if that was a, a nominee that they didn't want to see get confirmed. You really want to tell me they wouldn't use every tool at their disposal to stop them? Because you're living in a fantasy world, I think, because I saw what they did to Amy Coney Barrett and Judge Kavanaugh. And if you're going to tell me they won't use a legal rule to not get what they want, 866-408-7669. Your call is coming up next on The Brian Kilmeade Show.
the talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. And we're supposed to be like trained seals over here clapping when you appoint a liberal. That's not going to work. We live in America today where your ideology is held against you if you're a conservative. And when you're a liberal, we're supposed to embrace everything about you and not ask hard questions. You know, that's interesting that quote there coming from Senator Lindsey Graham talking about the nomination process and the confirmation process of Katanji Brown-Jackson. But he's on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and they, they whiffed. They had the opportunity, Republicans had the opportunity to play the way Democrats do, and they didn't do it. And this is what drives me crazy about Republicans. They don't fight. It drives me nuts. He talks a great game, but he didn't do what he could have done. So they had a recess yesterday, midday, because uh, Senator Alex Padilla was delayed on a flight. And because the, the split on the committee is 11-11, all of the Republicans opposing Jackson as, and the full Senate's 50-50. So they had to, they had to um, do this. They had to do 50-50. So they have a discharge vote, and that's what the Senate Judiciary Committee does. And if the committee deadlocks... Democrats move to the Senate floor to discharge Jackson's nomination. So if the vote goes 50-50, it goes to the Senate floor, which is 50. Uh, if it's 11-11 on, on the Judiciary Committee, Senate's 50-50. So it goes for, for quote-unquote, discharge, which they got the discharge vote. And that is the first of several procedural steps. The committee, the Senate Judiciary Committee, has not deadlocked since 1991 over Clarence Thomas. So they sent the the, recommend, the nomination to the floor without a recommendation, so it can still be brought up for vote. So they they needed to this because all committees are split when you have a split Senate. But what they could have done is there was a title, this Title 26, and Title 26 would allow them, it's a rule that they could have used that would have, excuse me, Senate Rule 26, that requires a majority of members to be physically present to move anything out of a committee. So all they had to do was just not show up. They could have denied a quorum in the Senate Judiciary Committee. So the nomination would not have been reported out of the committee and placed on the calendar and moved to the Senate floor. But they didn't do that. They chose to show up, and it moves forward. So for Lindsey Graham to sit there and whine the way you heard him, if you're a conservative, he talks a great game. I love the Lindsey Graham that talks. I don't love the Lindsey Graham that asks, because the Lindsey Graham, that his actions don't mirror his, his words. He says one thing and then doesn't do anything else. He doesn't back it up with action. All they had to do was not show up. And the Democrats would be dead in the water with the confirmation of Ketanji Brown-Jackson. But I don't understand it. It makes no sense to me, and it drives me crazy. And I just had to, if you want to comment on that, that drove me absolutely nuts. 866-408-7669. And Lindsey Graham knows about this because he's done it before. So it's not like they don't know. Lindsey Graham and, and the rest of them, uh, Chuck Grassley's the chair of the committee. You tell me he's been 
I like Chuck Grassley. He's been in Washington, D.C. forever. You're going to tell me he doesn't know about this rule that he could use? Baloney. Don't buy it. And if he does, if they don't, then you shouldn't be on the committee. Who are you? Read the handbook. 866-408-7669 is my number. So if you want to comment on that, uh, we were also, we had a guest on just now, uh, Dr. Tom Kirsting, talking about the legalization of marijuana towards the end of the conversation there. And it has passed the House, but it's probably going to die in the Senate. So you've got states that say it's legal, and you've got the feds that say it's not legal, and the feds are just ignoring the states that say it's, that it's legal. It's a mess. It's got to go one way or the other. And I'd like to get your point, your point of view on that. 866-408-7669. Let's go to Joel in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Joel, you are on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hi. You know, I've talked to Rush three times. I've been there, done that, and you're a great host, and I appreciate you. Well, thank and you. I appreciate I'm that. I'm sorry to say this, but I am an expert on marijuana. I, I spilled more dope rolling doobies in college than most people have ever smoked. And I got to tell you, Alcohol is a hundred times worse than marijuana. Uh, marijuana made me a great golfer for three holes, and then the the, the following holes go figure. <laughs> and it's I I stopped it about fifteen years ago. I'm not sure why, but it wasn't a big deal. It's not the addictive drug that they say it is. Alcohol is, and it's all in the mind. I don't believe it's physically, but the thing with with dope that bothers me is little kids see it. And I always tell my friends that raising kids is easy. If you behave yourself, you got their back, they're going to love you forever. But once kids see you doing stuff like that, they lose respect, and it's hard as hell to get it back. And that's the problem, and that's what disturbs me. So I have no desire to go back smoking weed. And the big part of it was I like to have my lungs healthy, Um, I like to keep them clear. And, you know, I know you can eat it or whatever, but it's um, it's just not good. And that that was my point. Yeah. No, I appreciate you sharing that. Thank you so much, Joel. You've given us a a lot to to talk about. I listen. I don't know if alcohol is the gateway, as Joel says, or if it's uh, marijuana, as Dr. Kirsting says. I I think, because I've seen among my friends, if you have an addictive personality, you can become addicted to anything. And I say that because I know people who were addicted to marijuana and they smoked all the time. So when they decided that they weren't going to do it anymore because they were also smoking cigarettes as well, they were, they were giving up the smoking of everything. They, this person, one person went to exercise and became anorexic and an exerciseaholic and was out of control going to the gym three times a day. And that, that, that was the new addiction. Another friend who smoked cigarettes gave up the cigarettes and became addicted to coffee. 150 degrees out, uh, humid at the Jersey shore and came, came into our house like spitting venom because he couldn't get coffee at the little deli across the street. I'm like, yes, because it's 10,000 degrees. No one's making coffee because no one's going to drink it, but he had to have it. He was addicted. He had to have, you know, five cups of coffee a day. So I think if you have an addictive personality, you will, you will, you know, it always be something. But I, I think we have to come up with some kind of an answer when it comes to the legalization or not. Jerry in Wisconsin, you're on the Brian Kilmeade show. Hi, Jerry. Hi. Um, I, I, I don't use marijuana. My, my nephew does. My sister does. And this idea that 
they have jobs, they work. The idea that someone is just like playing video games all day. One, I, I don't even care much if they're playing video games, but a lot of marijuana users use the drug and they're fine. And two, I don't want the government using force to arrest people and go on and do raids unless some, something someone is doing is really bad. I want the government going after murder suspects, uh, rape suspects. I don't want them going after someone who buys or maybe uh, sells you know, marijuana. I, I don't want that. In, in the government that represents me. I, I don't want, you know, guns pointed over something I find relatively, you know, harmless. You know, teens shouldn't use it, but adults, that's fine if adults want to use it. Yeah, I, I agree. I think there there, we, there is a um, stereotype that you just pointed out of the stoner. You know, when our last caller said, yeah, when I was younger, I was that guy. Okay. Uh, but there are plenty of people who drink alcohol but aren't falling down drunk on the weekends or every day of the week. So I think that is something that can be used in moderation by most people. I Just like I see them use alcohol in moderation. But if it's out there anyway, it's not going away. So why not regulate it and get a handle on it? Let's okay. quickly go to Tom Z listening on WABC in New York. Hi, Tom. Hi, yeah. I am. Uh, are you, Mary? My, um, I, you know, I'm get I get confused. You know, when I was younger, when I was a kid, I, I, um, I used pot. I smoked, but now I, I use marijuana mostly in edible form because I have PTSD, and I get relief from it, my symptoms. But when I was a kid, it, 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 I smoked it and to get high, you know, and and then uh, it's it had benefit. It didn't have much. I mean, it did have benefits because I was a fighter because of my PTSD. I got less fights and everything, but eventually led me to harder drugs and uh, because I never dealt with my problems. And, um, you know, I, it, once in a while, I think it's okay now. But when, once I started dealing with my problems, I started to see the benefits of, of the cannabis for me. And I, don't, I can't smoke it because of my lung issues sometimes. But uh, I, 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 do get, I do get a lot of relief from the cannabis. What mm-hmm. I don't like is young kids thinking that, you know, they're doing it to get high. They're doing it to have fun and stuff like that. Whatever their social you know, uh, problem. I mean, their social, um, I don't know the word I'm looking for, whatever yeah, their social good. background is, it's just, it's dangerous to, to give a kid, even you know, bring their brain down. You know, I mean, I'm lucky enough to, I didn't smoke a, a, so much of it that I got brain dead, but I am an average, I was an average student, you know, but if I didn't smoke pot, I might've been an exceptional student, you know, and it, sure. I think it is a gateway drug, you know, and at least a harder drugs. And, um, uh, I did find the relief, and uh, what I believe is when you're you're young, you smoke it, you, you don't like to try new stuff because of curiosity. You know, we get curious sure. as children, and knowing that, um, what harder drugs do, I realized when I was killing that it was killing myself. So now I just use it in edible form. You know, I mean, I smoke a little bit once in a while, but it, it helps a little bit. But I'd rather have this than like the stuff that the doctors were prescribing, like Xanax, Ativan, and all that other stuff. Yeah. Listen, you know, it, is, I- it is better for me for that. I think what I'm hearing, and thank you so much. I'm sorry to cut you off. I just got to take a quick break. But what I'm hearing, and I think we all agree on, is nobody wants kids to be able to get a hold of this. But right now, your kids can get a hold of it, right? They can. So when isn't it better to at least for parents to recognize that it's out there and at least have it more tightly controlled and more tightly regulated as to its contents. So you're not having like fentanyl in the marijuana or, or another drug that makes it more addictive in it. Now, will they be able to get that on the street? Sure. But I think it makes parents more aware.
I just think we need to have a come to Jesus moment about it. And that's the conversation we're having. 866-408-7669. More of your calls coming up on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Don't go anywhere. Brian Kilmeade will be right back. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. I'm Mary Walter sitting in for Brian. It's your turn, 866-408-7669, talking about uh, the, the push to legalize marijuana. Bill has made it out of the House, but it is expected to, to die in the Senate because the Republicans are expected to vote against it. Uh, and you know, we have a patchwork of, of laws around the country, and I don't think that that's sustainable. We kind of have to come up with one rule for the, the whole country. And we were also talking... Uh, about my little rant that I just had to go about the Senate Rule 26 that Republicans could have used and chose not to use, and they could have blocked the vote of Katanji Brown-Jackson getting out of the Senate Judiciary Committee. And then it doesn't go anywhere because it never gets put on the on the schedule, never gets put on the Senate calendar, everybody's calendar. Um, so I, I'm just annoyed that the Republicans chose just to just punt and just say, oh, well, they sit back and go, we're such victims. They're really great at playing the victim and they're not proactive and they don't fight. Let's go to Jim in Dayton, Ohio, listening on WHIO. Hi, Jim. Hi, Mary. I got to tell you, you're absolutely nuts. And these callers talking about legalizing and, and regulating marijuana so that parents are more aware of it and that because it's out there anyway. I don't know if you've noticed, most parents in America are lousy parents. It's really hard to be a parent. How about helping us out? My kid goes out the door, and I have to worry if there's a drug dealer out there trying to get him on marijuana because it is a gateway drug. Do you guys not know anyone who has died of an addiction from from opioids or something else where it started with marijuana? Because I do. And and the fact that you guys the, – the idea that we're going to make that more accessible to kids – and oh, now it's on the parent. You know, the parents just need to do a little more for crying out loud. Get, help us out a little bit. That's just nuts. They're how also, does you know, let me ask you a question by our, being regulated? How does it make it more accessible to children? How does how does it being are cigarettes accessible to children? Is alcohol accessible to children? Now, is cocaine accessible to children? Yeah, it is a lot harder to get. I don't know about you. I, I would say I have an addictive personality. I made it all the way through high school and college, never used marijuana in my life. Why? Because I really didn't want to do something illegal. So give us that. Give us and your parents and your parents raised to. a good kid and they taught you good values. I, I guess. But you didn't answer my question. Yeah. I, you said it's going to make it more accessible to children. And my question to you is, how does it make it more accessible to children if it's now being regulated by the government? The content's being regulated by the government, just like you do with alcohol. You so, you know, grain isn't of, available. I, moonshine's not available anymore. That kind of stuff. Example of cigarettes, uh, alcohol, both regulated by the government, easily accessible to children. They see it, they see their parents using it, and it's easy to get. You make something illegal, it's hard to get. And that's what it is today. You're saying it's easier to get today. I agree, because we've made it easier to get today. We've legalized it in many places. So let me ask you a question then. As a parent, do you use alcohol in front of your children? I'm sorry? Do you use alcohol in front of your children? No, I don't. 
Okay, but most people do, and your kids are well aware of it. Most 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 yes, people do yes. use alcohol in front of their children. And I had a I had a friend in college, became an alcoholic in college, through obviously the use of alcohol, easily accessible, legal, yes, regulated, still got it, even underage got it, yeah. and ruined his life, lost his family, lost Absolutely. his career, lives on the streets. So. I, I, you know, can I? Can we turn back alcohol? No, we already tried that. Can we turn back smoking? No, we really can't. Can we prevent marijuana from joining the list of ills that, that plague our society? Yeah, we can. Could you help us out a little? All right. Instead of saying, oh, it's up to the parents to do it. You know, with all the things kids have Jim. to worry about today and what they should be focusing on, mm-hmm. learning the Constitution, learning, learning to aspire to things realizing they have value instead our legislators are figuring out look do you think it might be okay to give them one more toxic thing to destroy their lives and distract them from reality give all right Jim, thank, uh, thank you very much i appreciate you you weighed in and i do want to get some, to some other callers and i don't have a lot of time but thank you very much uh william in florida you've got about a minute and a half to respond hi hello yes i'd love to respond to that you know what it's the fact of the matter is, is that the government is, takes away a lot of your rights as parents. But parents should be disciplining their kids more. Don't drink in front of your kids. Don't show them set a bad example. That's the problem. The problem is not whether marijuana is a gateway drug. Everything is a gateway drug. If you're a shitty parent and you're, I'm sorry, and your your kids grow up with character defects, they're going to have issues that they're going to want to go to things that kind of alleviate the problems they have at home. Read a book, man. Read a book. So. All right, we got we got to run, but thank you so much. I I, I appreciate the rebuttal. But this is what's going to play out across the country, and it's there are many states in which, are, as I keep saying, it is legal already, and we can't continue to have that patchwork across the country. But um, and listen, I know raising kids is hard. I get it. I understand it. I hear you. But I think your kids are going to come in contact with a lot of things over the course of their life and maybe learning how to deal with it when it presents itself is a good thing, too. I'm Mary Walter. You're listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. The Will Kane Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Kane as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.